Hello, and welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. This podcast is produced for care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's disease. This show is brought to you by Dr. Kloss's new book, You're a Better Parkinson's Disease Caregiver Than You Think. Please visit tvcaring.com for more information. Welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kloss. Today's topic is deep brain stimulation surgery. We are going to focus today's show on topics that are important to care partners and caregivers in relationship to this treatment option for your loved ones with Parkinson's disease. We're not going to focus on eligibility criteria or preoperative testing required uh, for this procedure. There are plenty of webinars and other uh, informationals available to cover these topics. Instead, what I'd like to focus on today are new innovations, new technologies, and what these new device companies are bringing to the market for patients interested in deep brain stimulation surgery. I would also like to highlight new intraoperative techniques, new resources that are available to the surgeons to use during surgery, which will help with the outcomes of this procedure. And we are going to discuss important topics related to care of your loved one immediately after surgery and what to expect after surgery and what to watch out for. I hope you find the topic informative and helpful. To share this topic with you today, I had the privilege of interviewing a local neurosurgeon, Dr. Andrew Connor. Dr. Andrew Connor is currently the Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery and Functional Neurosurgery at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He completed his neurosurgery residency at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. He then completed a functional and epilepsy surgery fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. I've had the honor of working side-by-side with Dr. Andrew Connor as we care for patients here in Oklahoma requiring deep brain stimulation surgery and deep brain stimulation programming. So I hope you enjoy the interview on today's podcast with Dr. Andrew Connor. Dr. Connor, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, be on our podcast today. We really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much. I I appreciate the opportunity. Um, It's always great to uh, talk about uh, DBS and movement disorder surgery. Uh, It's definitely a passion of mine. So this is a uh, really uh, a privilege and uh, it's all mine. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, I thought if you could give our, our caregivers, our care partners listening, um, kind of the 10,000-foot view um, as you see it, looking back over the last 10 years, uh, you know, how, how do you think DBS surgery has changed in the last 10 years? What, what sort of advances have you seen, you know, from the time you were training into the current year? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, honestly, um, it, it's, it really is changing a lot, and it has changed a lot. 
um, really even within the past, uh, you know, few years, in all honesty, I mean, when I was in uh, residency training, um, there was only one company that made uh, DBS hardware, and that, that was Medtronic. And um, they had basically, you know, kind of been making the exact same equipment with, without a whole lot of innovation for quite some time. Um, and uh, since, you know, in the past, I'd say, what is it, maybe five to seven years, uh, two other companies have came on the market, um, uh, Abbott, and, uh, Abbott, which is formerly St. Jude and uh, Boston Scientific. Um, and their, their you know, new, uh, the new technology they brought with them um, were, was uh, a directional uh, or a current steering uh, DBS electrode. That's been a huge advancement in the field as far as uh, DBS is concerned. Now Medtronic actually also has a directional or current steering electrode, um, which they recently uh, released within the past few months, actually. Um, other things that have changed uh, significantly, uh, you know, outside of just the electrode design um, is uh, better uh, recharging um, systems. So the old um, uh, Medtronic uh, rechargeable um, uh, battery was very uh, difficult to use in the past, and, and uh, it, was, it was really uh, uh, avoided by a lot of uh, uh, surgeons and patients. And um, that's been upgraded and is now much better um, and, uh, and actually a, um, much easier to use for patients. So that, that's been a huge advance. Um, and then also the sort of the, the newest thing um, that, that's out there as far as uh, DBS technology is concerned has been um, this idea of developing what's called a closed loop uh, DBS system or a, a DBS system that um, is able to record uh, uh, brain activity um, and, and then hopefully in the future utilize that for treatment um, on its own. So really what we're seeing, in, in my opinion, and, and what I've seen is, uh, you know, an advancement of the uh, hardware itself um, and giving it more flexibility um, and more options for programming, which I think is always a good thing. Um, and then also the actual simulators themselves, the, the, the actual device, you know, that's, that's implanted in the chest has also undergone a lot of upgrades. And I think that Really, the, the future um, for, for DBS is a system that can um, not only sense what's going on in the brain, but act on it uh, to some degree and regulate its own output uh, to some degree, um, you know, to help patients. Because we know that, you know, symptoms and needs change uh, throughout the day and just depending on, you know, different things. And it, it would be great. And I think it's sort of the holy grail right now to have a system that, that could recognize um, you know, if a patient's having more tremor or less tremor or, you know, is having more rigidity or less rigidity or, or having more symptoms, basically, and it can alter its own output um, without any, you know, input um, from the patient. Um, uh, and I think that would actually tailor their therapy. Um, one of the big advances from a research standpoint that has kind of been the focus of, of this type of technology um, actually was performed in a large part where I did my fellowship at, uh, at UCSF in San Francisco. Um they're actively working on a uh, system that does just that, where it's able to read uh, the, the, the brain signals, um, basically uh, different frequencies that uh, the brain uh, uh, exhibits in different disease states, and it's able to uh, regulate itself or modulate itself um, based off that. It was just actually that that paper was recently published in Nature, um, and it's the first patients, uh, first humans that have had a system that's been able to do that. So. That's on the forefront right now. Uh, Medtronic, they, they one of their newer um, simulator uh, packs is called the Percept. Um, is able to do uh, sensing or actually give you a readout of brain activity 
um, for patients. And so that's kind of the, the sort of the forerunner for a lot of this, uh, uh, other, all these other advancements that are coming down the pipe. So quite a bit is going on really in the field. Um, well, that's very exciting. It, it really is wonderful for patients. And I, I think for them to have competition in the marketplace, we're seeing, you know, some great advances, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think that, you know, competition breeds innovation. And, and in this, you know, this space is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think we would see be seeing any of this stuff without uh, some of these other companies that have come into the space, you know. Right. And you mentioned the closed loop. I think that's really fascinating that a patient could have just sort of automated adjustments that take place in the brain so that if, if they're developing an off time and having some tremor come back, they it might auto-regulate the um, stimulation to improve those symptoms. Um, some of our patients are very nervous about, you know, programming, self-programming with the remote control. Um, but for those that do enjoy that, um, would they still be able to have some control? Do you think with the controlled with the the closed loop system? Oh, I think so. I think that you know we're we're quite a ways off from having a fully automated system. Um, I don't know that we'll ever have truly a fully automated system, at least anytime soon, that requires you know no input whatsoever. Um, but I think that it's really important to give patients control of their device regardless of that. Um, it's sort of like a self-driving car, you know, there's still someone in the driver's seat and they, you know, they, they still can take over if needed. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> what supposed to do. So I think it's really important that that, that control is still there. And, and true, truthfully too, it, it gives patients peace of mind, I think, to know that I have the ability to turn this off if there's a problem, you know, and I, I think that that will always be there. And, it, you know, the, the truth is, I mean, there, there may be situations that, um, despite all of our advances and our, our, you know, understanding of, uh, uh, how the brain, you know, how, how, what is going on in the brain when, when patients are very symptomatic, you know, we, we don't, we don't have the, the whole picture, you know, there's, there's no way to know every single aspect of, of what's going on, you know, with a patient. And so I think that, you know, you still will need the human element, um, you know, in order to, to potentially adjust the system and that sort of thing for some, for some patients. But I do think that, you know, there are those, like you said, that are very nervous about, you know, being able to go up or down on their power, for instance, or they're, or they're nervous to even use their, their programmer because they're afraid they're going to mess something up. And I think that, you know, if you have a, a system that um, can tailor, you know, their, their therapy a little bit, it would, it would probably be less, of, less, of, uh, um, less intimidating. And the other thing, too, is that with, with these advancements, I think that sort of the, um, sort of the, the thing that's not really talked about a whole lot is that, a lot of these advancements will prolong battery life. And I think that's a big thing to consider um, as a patient and even as a caregiver is that, you know, we implant these systems, but they do need to be replaced from time to time, you know, the simulator does. And it, you don't necessarily need stimulation on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it would be nice if the system would know, you know, hey, the patient's sleeping, I, I will shut down now, you know, and preserve or conserve battery. Um, so I think that that really actually has a, a kind of an... Uh, almost a hidden benefit to some of these advancements just outside of symptom management. Right. And, and you certainly change out the batteries for these patients that have DBS, and you've probably seen a, a great improvement in battery longevity over the years. Um, what's the update there? Are you seeing um, much longer uh, battery life out of these new systems? I think that, you know, honestly, the, the so right now, if you compare the three companies, um, and this is just based on a averages, and everyone's different, right? So some patients need more 
or use more power. I need more frequent replacements than others. Um, but for instance, the Medtronic, so Medtronic, we'll start with them. Um, their new, um, Percept battery, it's a non-rechargeable battery that drives, uh, both brain leads. So, uh, each brain lead on each side down to, to one battery pack. It has a slight increase in its battery life. The, the previous average, uh, length of battery for, for the, uh, precursor to their new system, the Percept, the old Activa PC, um, it was estimated to last roughly four years, four to five years for patients. The new, um, at what they call Percept, um, really can last, it's, it's average length of, length of time is something like four and a half to five and a half years. Um, it just depends. I think that the other thing about it though is that, you know, it, it has new features that do consume power. So it may be a wash as far as the difference in overall battery life. It hasn't been around long enough to really know kind of where it's going to land, so to speak, um, in, in real, you know, real patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the other companies that are out there with, uh, Boston Scientific, for instance, they, they're, um, announced that I think it's the Janus battery, the, the uh, previous recharge, rechargeable battery was called the Jevia. Um, that was really a big breakthrough in my opinion, um, for rechargeable, um, batteries at the time, there really wasn't a good rechargeable option when that system was launched. And, Patients really have had good experiences um, using that system, and it really does seem to be reliable and easy to use. Um, it doesn't have some of the drawbacks that the Medtronic rechargeable battery has, such as with the Medtronic rechargeable battery, you, you really can't let it go to zero charge um, three times or it goes into lockout, which obviously makes people nervous because they don't want to mess up and then you know have the battery have to be replaced when it's really supposed to last, you know, 10 years or more, 15 years in some cases. Um, so the Boston Scientific rechargeable battery doesn't do that. Um, it doesn't have um, an issue where if it runs out of power um, multiple times, it, it locks itself out. So I think that's a, a big boon. The current um, lifespan of these rechargeable batteries, both of Medtronic and Boston Scientific, um, according to the FDA, is 15 years. Now, I, I tell patients this every time I, I speak about these batteries uh, within the clinic is that I, I'm a, I'm a pessimist. I don't think that any of these systems will last 15 years. I think that you're probably looking more like maybe 10 years um, because what, what happens is eventually the, these batteries will not be able to hold a charge anymore, just like your, just like your phone. Um, eventually this is a charge as well. So we don't know the, the actual, you know, the actual, actual lifespan because they haven't been around long enough for us to really know how long they're going to be there. Um, the third company, um, Abbott, they have, um, they, they don't actually have a rechargeable option in their portfolio, um, but what they did instead was focus their R&D on um, developing a longer-lasting um, battery. And so they their average uh, 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 battery life, according to the company, is something like five to seven years, um, which is you know better than the Medtronic counterpart. Now these are all, this is all theoretical, um, but that is the the difference with with their device now. You know, again, it's hard to know if that's really how it will behave, um, you know, uh, long term in patients. But overall, I think that, you know, at least at least within stimulator space, I think that, you know, with DBS, there is definitely a, a large push um, from all companies to, to give patients longer lasting devices, um, you know, or, or easier to manage devices. It, it really does seem like that, that these companies do uh, care about the patient and put the patient first. There's, there, doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any kind of, uh, you know, 
for profit over patient type of tactics with some of this technology, which, which is really important. Um, so I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, in, unless someone really makes a big advancement with battery technology, you're probably going to be around the same amount of uh, time that the batteries will last and also the same size of the unit until something comes along that, you know, can revolutionize that. But I think that at this point with our current technology, we're pretty much maxing out the lifespan of these systems. Um, you, you know what I mean? Uh, the only other option is just, rechar- you know, using a rechargeable system instead or something along those lines. So Okay, great. And, and you've talked about a new technology allowing the DBS programmer to uh, connect to the patient at home instead of coming to the clinic, which is obviously becoming more and more of a concern with the pandemic. And and also there's patients in the past that I think felt that they were excluded from consideration of DBS because they lived too far away from a surgical uh, center. And now maybe that technology is changing. Can you tell us a little bit about that technology? Absolutely. So, so um, the company that makes that system um, that you're referring to is Abbott. They're formerly known as St. Jude. Um, their device, it's kind of the, the thing that separates Abbott, I think, from the other two uh, companies. They, they all, all these companies sort of have one, one thing that's different, you know, or two things that's different, for instance, than the others. Um, Abbott's focused on this uh, the system called remote care, um, or otherwise known as Neurosphere, and what it allows you to do, I've actually used it. Um, it, 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 has, it works really well, actually. But um, what, it, what it allows you to do um, is the actual battery itself, um, uh, it basically, uh, that, that's implanted into the patient, it communicates with the patient programmer via Bluetooth. And the patient programmer and with, with the Abbott system can be um, your, your own iPhone, for instance, um, it's actually just an app on your phone that can connect to the system. It's very secure, wow. um, but uh, uh, the other options, if you, if you don't have an iPhone, they do give you, a, you know, an, like an iPod Touch that does the same thing because they, they use the Apple operating system. What it can do is if you have a um, clinician programmer, so like a tablet that, that's used in the office, for instance, to adjust the system, as long as the patient is um, in, area, in an area that has stable and reliable Wi-Fi signal, the patient programmer connects to Wi-Fi, um, just like your iPhone connects to Wi-Fi, same, exact same setup, exact same system, um, but it also connects to the battery that's implanted in the patient. And then as long as the patient allows it, it doesn't let anyone access the system unless they authorize them. Um, and there's a special code that you have to use to, to, to you know, access their system, um, you can remotely log in to their battery, um, wherever they are, as long as they're on the internet, as long as they're around somewhere that has access to Wi-Fi internet and it sets up an automatic video conference, just like, you know, we've been using with in telemedicine during the pandemic. It's the exact same kind of thing. It literally pops up a video of the clinician who's staring at the tablet doing the programming and it shows a video of the patient. Um, two that's holding the, the, the programmer and you can literally you can program the system right then and there with the patient's permission while you're watching them you can interrogate the system so for instance what, what I what I used it for um, was uh, a patient that uh, was worried that they might have a problem with their system and I was able to run an impedance check remotely 
um, over the internet, and you know, I was like, this is great, they, and that saved them a visit. Wow. Um, turns out their impedance was fine, and it, no, that wasn't the issue. But um, anyway, so it's like you, you're able. Basically, the bottom line is you're able to run diagnostic checks um, if you need to. You're able to do this all, this, you know, the full breadth of programming as well remotely. Um, now, you know, there are some drawbacks with the programming. I mean, you really, you know, I, I don't obviously do much DBS programming. That's more of, of your world, of course. But you know, I would. You, you, you're really just seeing a video and. It, it, could be hard, you know, to do full programming just, you know, via uh, telemedicine, but it is a nice access tool. Um, I think, too, just having peace of mind for patients to say, hey, is, is the system okay? Let's say they had a, a minor fall or a, a car accident or something like that. I mean, the number one question is, is my DBS system okay? Did I hurt it? And instead of having to make an appointment, you, you can, you know, you can virtually log in and just check the system basically without them having to travel. Um, and it also, you know, increases access in a place like Oklahoma, where you have a lot of, you know, uh, people that live uh, a ways away from, you know, the, you know, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, for instance. Um, it really does add a different element um, to, to taking care of these patients. I think in a, in a good way. Um, I, I, it would be interesting to see really how this shakes out, um, or, you know, over time, and to really see the true benefit of this, and to see if it's really utilized like we might think it will be. Um, I would think that if it's a, if it's a major success that the other companies would probably, um, you know, invest in the, uh, R and D to do the same thing with their systems. Sure. Um, but right now that's just sort of the, you know, only Abbott, um, is able to, to do that. And, and like I said, I've used it myself in, in the real world and it really does work well. Uh, it, it was pretty interesting, but yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was great. Well, I want to get a little bit more into the weeds of, of caring for, for patients with DBS, if you don't mind. And, and I'm just curious, when, when you see patients and their caregivers in the office and you're, you're going through sort of the pre-surgical checklist and you're talking to them about surgery and answering their questions, and, and maybe sometimes they're not 100% sure that they want to move ahead with surgery, um, how often do you find that the caregivers are part of that decision to move forward? Do you feel like they're involved in the decision making, or is it just the patient that's kind of making decisions? And and should the caregivers be, you know, more involved if they're not? What, what's your thought? That's a very good question. I think that ultimately, at least my experience is that that I think the patient really, at least on the whole, really has made the decision um, for themselves um, before really I see them. Um, you know, I, I really don't have to, you know sell anything, so to speak, not that I did that anyway, but um, they usually come in and they sort of have their mind set on, on this, or, or they've been told, you know, hey, you're, you're potentially a really good candidate for the surgery, and then what, what I do is, is basically explain, you know, the, the my discussion kind of centers on a couple things. Number one, it's what, what can DBS do and what can it not do? So, you know, what I want to do is set realistic expectations. Um, and then, you know, number two is it, it really the, it, the bulk of my conversation is what to expect, you know, from a surgical standpoint. What is it like? What, what is the surgery like? What are the, you know, where, we, where do we do the incisions? What, what's the recovery time like? These sort of things. I spend a lot of time um, talking about the actual surgery, what to expect, how, how we do this, the, sort of the details, the risks of surgery. Um, and, and I also really do emphasize this to the caregiver. I think it's incredibly important um, for the, the patient's caregiver to be at their appointment um, so they understand as well. Because truthfully, 
you know, it, it, even if a patient's really well educated on DBS, it's a whirlwind of information uh, when, when they come and see me. And a part of it's probably my fault because I talk a lot. But, um, you know, so, some of it I, I think is there's just a lot of stuff to talk about. I mean, you know, if there were, if, if we're looking, if we turn the clock back, you know, a few years, um, really there's only one system. There wasn't really much to discuss outside of a few things. Now there's multiple companies, <laughs> uh, multiple different ways of implanting the system. Um, you know, different considerations. And so, um, it does get, you know, a little bit complicated. Um, so it's nice when someone's with the patient who, you know, is able to take notes and, you know, that sort of thing. Because I think that they, they, you know, as a caregiver, the experience, you know, obviously the experience is a little different for them than it is for the patient themselves. And I think that, you know, some of, of their questions are very specific to just being a caregiver as opposed to being the person who has this, you know, the, the system uh, implanted. Um, and a lot of those questions usually revolve around recovery time. And I spend a lot of time talking about sort of the, sort of some of the, the temporary side effects that patients can experience with the system, uh, with, uh, with the surgery itself. I mean, one of the, the really common things that I see, um, postoperatively after DBS surgery is that some patients have, uh, it's temporary, but some patients have a, uh, uh, a diminished level of, of cognition. Um, their thinking's a little fuzzy, and their memory can be a little bit uh, worse than it was before. Um, and everyone experiences that to variable degrees. I, I've seen it last for a while. I've seen it last weeks in some patients. I've seen it not even happen in some patients. It's really unpredictable, and so I like to make sure I mention that because and, and talk about it, you know, quite a bit with the caregiver. Because you know what, what we don't want is to, to you know have a successful surgery and then that patient come to the ER because. Their, their caregiver was just being cautious and didn't know that this is not an, an unexpected thing that can happen. You know, and th- that's even, it's even harder on the patient, I think, to come back to the hospital, you know, right. or something like that in those situations. So I spend a considerable amount of time um, addressing those sort of things. But I think that ultimately, you know, just to kind of circle back to your original question, I do think that, you know, most of the decision-making really, um, at least in my experience, seems to be, you know, led by the patient themselves as far as am I going to do this or not mm-hmm. and then you know now sometimes too um, you know the caregivers that are there are very you know encouraging most of the time they are they're very encouraging uh, you know think that you know either either they, they're you know they see them and they've seen them you know their symptoms progress and you know their, their, their on and off fluctuations are getting worse and worse or they're you know, their symptoms are getting worse despite medication. And so they're, they're also kind of a cheerleader um, for the surgery because they want what's best for the person they're caring for. Um, you know, so I, I think that it really, it, 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 it's very patient-centered as far as the decision to move forward with surgery or not. But I think that ultimately the, the discussion behind it and what to expect and, and is this a good idea for me is, is, is very much a group, you know, discussion, you know, with the, the patient's, neurologist and, and the caregiver and then the surgeon and that sort of thing. I think that, that you know, really all those components are very important. Um, and I, I mean, I tell patients too that, you know, part of my, um, my criteria, um, for, for instance, if you have surgery, um, and for really any surgery that I do, but it's particularly true for DBS, uh, you know, I, there's only about five things that patients have to do in order for us to consider them safe to go home you know, after surgery and, and, you know, it's pretty basic stuff, but the, the, the most important thing is that the patient and the, and the caregiver have to be comfortable, you know, going home and, and, and discharging from the hospital. And, and I, 
I've kept patients inpatient because they weren't ready to go home yet, and that's okay. Um, so for me, it's it's really, uh, you know, it, you have to kind of approach this um, uh, from more, more of a holistic standpoint and, and look at the, the big picture, you know, so to speak. Because there's a lot of things that play, you know, um, just in, in, in this disease in general and, 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 and all of the factors that surround it. Right. And, you know, you give great instructions to uh, the patients and caregivers about how to take care of the incisions and how to do the, the post-operative care. And the patients often know that they're going to be going home, taking their regular medications. The DBS is not going to be turned on for at least several weeks or longer. And then they're certainly not going to be um, better for maybe months of, of programming efforts. But but right after surgery, when the caregiver is sort of home and they know there may be some transient cognitive changes, but is, is there anything that they really need to be watching for that would tell them, this is not normal, I need to call the surgeon, I need to get this uh, my loved one back to the emergency room, this is a, a, a serious problem that is not expected. What are the things that we should tell them? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so, honestly, you know, mo- most things, and I, mean, I tell patients this too, you know, uh, pretty routinely, it, you know, honestly, if, if you're, if you're calling, if, if you think there's a problem and it's, 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 uh, bothersome enough that you're calling the doctor's office, most of the time you're going to, unless it's a very simple question, you know, it's always the, the default recommendation as well, you know, go to the ER because we, we, got, we don't know, we have to see the patient. Um, so ultimately I think though that, um, the things to really watch for, you know, for, from a surgical standpoint, it really is, is pretty simple stuff. And, and I think that, you know, keeping things as, as bare bones as possible is, is better, you know, than, than having like a very detailed list of possible side effects and things to watch. Uh, number one thing is if you're concerned, I'm concerned. Um, you know, if, if the, if the caregiver thinks that there's a problem or something is not right, then absolutely let me know. Um, or bring them to the hospital. Now, sometimes, you know, we want to make sure that we're not, you know, jumping at every little thing. So, uh, you know, that, that may just be normal recovery. Um, cause you know, no one, we don't expect people to, to, to really be completely hundred percent ready for, for recovering from, from brain surgery. Right. So the things that are worrisome, um, you know, that, that would definitely indicate a major problem or something that needs to be evaluated, uh, emergently or immediately. Um, we need to start with the, the wounds. So, if the wounds start draining fluid um, or become very red or suddenly become more painful than they have been um, post-operatively, it's typically, this is typically not a very painful surgery overall. There's always some pain and some discomfort, but what I mean is that you're home, things have been going well for days, and then all of a sudden one of the wounds really starts to hurt. That's a pro- that, that oftentimes indicates that there may be an infection that's brewing. And truthfully, it's much, much better to catch an infection early than late because sometimes we can save the hardware if we're if we catch it soon enough. Um, now, granted, you know we've been very fortunate at OU and have not had a single DBS infection, um, knock on wood. Um, but um, that's something to know for sure. So, so if the general trend of recovery um, has kind of been upended, like if things were going really well and then suddenly something changes days later, that's to me, a warning sign. Um, so looking at the wounds, um, you know, if the dressings are becoming soaked or if there's fluid leaking out of any of them, that's something that we need to know about. Um, if there's increased redness or pain or swelling, that's something that we need to know about. 
Now, everyone has some of that postoperatively, right? So everyone has a little bit of, you know, puffiness and swelling, some more than others. Everyone has a little bit of redness just because your body's inflamed after you've had surgery. That's very normal. Um, but what I mean is, is, you know, like I said, everything's been kind of headed in a good direction. Then it takes a turn and goes the opposite direction. That's a worry sign. Neurologically speaking, if there are any, if there's anything focal, um, so that kind of the same symptoms or the, the same thing people, you know, talk about with stroke uh, and recognizing stroke, you know, if, if you notice, you know, one side of the body's not moving as well as the other, or, you know, the patient's got, you know, um, facial droop, or they're just not making sense, like their words are, you can't really understand what they're saying, um, or if they've taken a turn, you know, say they're doing fine, and then, you know, for a few days or a day or two, and then really can't can't keep them up, you know, when they wake up and they want to go right back to sleep or, um, you know, they, uh, um, aren't really making much sense or, or, you know, at all. I mean, like I said, it's, there's a, you know, there's this kind of a spectrum of, of, uh, side effects from, or, you know, a spectrum of cognitive disability, so to speak after surgery. And, and, you know, usually the, the sort of expected postoperative cognitive dysfunction is, I really, you could kind of describe it as like fuzziness, um, you know, like fuzzy thinking, you know, forgetfulness, almost innocent type of, you know, things that mm-hmm. really you might say, yeah, you know, you're a little more forgetful than usual, but otherwise, okay. What I mean is just not, not even remotely where they were, you know, mm-hmm. like not communicating, um, losing appetite is a, is a, oftentimes a warning sign that something's going on. Um, just not interacting, um, hard to get their attention, um, these sort of things that, and, and truthfully, really what, it, what all that comes down to is that, you know, if, if something looks abnormal and, and, and is worrisome, then it probably is worrisome. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of say that, you know, if something is, is spooky or, or, or disconcerting to, to the person, the caregiver who's taking care of the patient, let me know. I mean, it's, it's much easier just to ask than, you know, to, to let something go and, and, have a, and have a problem. But typically, you know, the things that would be really worrisome after a surgery are pretty obvious um, to pretty much anybody. And usually what you see is if you're going to have a complication or something like that or something really bad that's going on, it's either going to be a wound problem or something else, you know, from a brain standpoint, which usually looks something like a stroke in some cases or which is like weakness on one side or difficult communicating or the other side of it would be just in general, not acting like themselves, not even close, you know, barely interacting with their environment, not really wanting to eat or drink anything. Those are worrisome things. Um, thankfully that's very uncommon. And, you know, usually, um, uh, these things don't happen at all, but those those would be the the, the warning signs that I would say that to look for, um, for sure. I mean, oftentimes, I mean, it's truthfully, it's incredibly rare to have a brain-related problem after this surgery, you know, happens. It's very, very rare, if not unheard of, to have, you know, a brain bleed days and days and days later from your surgery um, or a stroke or something like that. It's just incredibly uncommon, um, if not if not impossible <laughs> almost, you know. So most of the time, if you're going to have a major problem with the surgery, you're going to know about it pretty quick right after the actual surgery itself because most things in the brain happen pretty much right away. Um, you know, the, the, the bad stuff that we worry about, like bleeding, 
you know, or stroke or those sort of things. So it usually is not a delayed phenomenon, um, in, in my experience, uh, in general. So hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, that's wonderful. Great advice. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you, you know, back 15 or so years ago when, um, patients were having DVS surgery, um, I think almost all the surgeries were being performed while the patient was awake during the surgery. And mm-hmm. we were testing them in the operating room, looking at their tremor, you know, turning on the device to see if we were in the optimal location. But that has changed. Um, and you were, of course, trained at a center that was really pioneering this idea of, of imaging during surgery to help get the best location uh, for the um, lead to be placed to get the best outcome. And can you tell us a little bit about how you're doing the surgery now with awake versus sure. sleep and intraoperative imaging? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we, at, at OU we offer, you know, the entire breadth of, of DBS surgery. So we, we can do DBS via the tra- traditional or the older method, which is awake with uh, rain recording the fancy term for that brain recording is called microelectrode recording or MER. Um, we, we can do that. We also do a sleep, uh, deep brain stimulation surgery where the patient's not awake for any part of it. Um, and we literally just implant the electrodes and use imaging to confirm that the electrodes are where we had wanted them to go. Um, the other option is a sleep deep brain stimulation surgery in, in our MRI uh, machine. So we literally tr- uh, turn our, one of our uh, MRI magnets, into an operating room with, you know, just like you'd see upstairs, it's, it's a, it's a complete, you know, uh, conversion of the, of the room into literally an operative suite. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to implant the system. Um, for sure, you know, in general, the, the trend, um, nationally has, or well, really worldwide um, now, um, but, uh, you know, more so in the United States, I would say has been moving towards a sleep, you know, uh, DBS surgery. The reason, that people have been doing these surgeries awake with recording was that number one, we didn't really have a great way to image the targets that we implant the electrodes, even despite MRI. Honestly, there just wasn't a, we didn't have high enough resolution imaging um, or sequences that could really help us see the structure better. And then the other thing too, probably more so than just the imaging technology was a lack of consensus as far as where the best position where the electrode was. So what people would do is use the microelectrode recording as a way to confirm that the pathway or the trajectory that they had chosen for the patient was correct. Because the areas that you place the electrode into have different sounds um, than the other areas of the brain. And, you know, we're trained to hear these different patterns um, in order to confirm, yes, in fact, you're in the right location or this is not the right location, for instance. Um, partly because we didn't have, like I said, consensus amongst surgeons or neurologists too, um, as far as where is the best location for this electrode. So people would look for things like tremor cells, for instance, during microelectric recording, and they would base their implant off of this. The thing is, over time, um, as this was studied, because you know these sort of surgeries have been studied very extensively uh, in our literature, they're really, uh, it became very clear that the best outcomes were sort of centered in, in this specific area of the GPI, for instance, which is one of the targets we typically use. Um, or, the, you know, the, the best location for 
um, you know, tr- uh, treatment effect was this part of the STN, or the subthalamic nucleus, um, which is another target for, for uh, Parkinson's, for instance. So um, people started thinking, well, you know, we're basically trying to all find the exact same spot, and it is always in this region right here. Why can't we just use pictures to guide our electrode, why would we need to confirm this? And so the next question then became, okay, well, if now you know exactly where to put the electrode and you don't have to go hunting for that location with brain recording, how do you know it's actually where you wanted it to go? How how can you be sure? And so there was a debate for a long time that, you know, anytime you do the surgery where you can drill a hole in the skull and you make an opening in the covering of the brain, you automatically introduce air into the head and the brain shifts a little bit and so some people argued that, well, if you put the electrode in the brain and the brain has shifted somewhat, your target also has shifted. Um, and how can you know that you're actually where you want it to be uh, despite imaging? So this MRI technique was invented to compensate for that because the idea is that an MRI, you know, is a, is a snapshot um, of the brain in its current position, its current state. And even if the brain shifted somewhat, you can still find the same target and still place the electrode safely into it versus using like a CAT scan, which can't see these targets as well, um, you, you're, you really can't know if the brain shifted, if you're still pointing at the same place you wanted to. That's why MRI or interventional MRI was utilized, um, is because you can see the target still on MRI. And that's how it gained a lot of uh, popularity from a sweet BBS implantation standpoint, because it, it basically compensated for the same things that we were doing with awake surgery, which is confirmation of the target and ensuring that the electrode was where you had wanted to go all along. The thing is, over time, um, with newer uh, systems like the upgraded uh, Medtronic O-Arm, for instance, um, now we're able to do very similar things in the operating room, and it's almost like this period of using MRI to to guide DBS, while still a very powerful tool, something I use all the time, I mean, I literally just used it yesterday, um, uh, is starting to, to... almost, you know, be caught, uh, lose some of its, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uniqueness, um, because we're, we're learning how to do these surgeries better um, in the operating room with, with just CT imaging, for instance, or OR imaging. Um, and I certainly have used that too. I think it, you know, for me, it, it really is patient-specific. Uh, I tell patients that, you know, I'm happy to do their surgery awake or asleep, whichever they prefer. The vast majority want to have a sleep surgery, who could blame him? Right. Um, but I do have some patients that want awake surgery. You know, they, they've, they're mentally prepared for that. Um, they, they want to see the effect uh, of, the, of stimulation, you know, in the operating room. I will say, though, that the last patient I did awake surgery on, this was like, I think a month or two ago, um, he, he wanted to see his tremor treated and just to see how it would work, you know, because we turned the system on briefly to test it in the operating room. And unfortunately, he didn't. He, he did everything, and he had a really good result, but he didn't remember any of the surgery. So oh, oh, I think yeah. it was kind of a hush. But, but anyway, so I think if looking back, he might have wanted to have sleep because he just had amnesia, you know, from the surgery. But um, anyway, um, yeah, so the, the good news is, you know, it does remove that barrier, which was there, um, in that you don't have to have serious awake for this. And, and the outcomes are the same. There really is, there's no benefit. Um even long-term benefit that we know of having awake DBS surgery versus asleep. Um, you know, and people look to see, you know, is, does it really matter? And the truth is really the, the ultimate um, deciding factor for how, what, 
the outcome you're going to have. It just depends on the center you're at and the, the surgeon that's doing the surgery and their experience with that technique. You know, um, if, if someone implants the system, they do it the same way every time, they do always do it awake, they probably have just as good outcomes as somebody who does it asleep all the time and uses MRI versus someone who does it asleep and uses OR. Um, it really just comes down to, you know, what, what surgeons have, you know, what, what your surgeon's experience is with whatever technique they're utilizing. Um, and ultimately, that's, that's kind of what is the most important thing as far as outcome is concerned. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, awake surgery is very hard on Parkinson's patients specifically. And, and part of the reason it's so difficult um, is that you do have to be off your medications for awake surgery. That's really hard. It's a stressful day in general, and off meds is even worse. And so it just really takes a lot out of people, um, you know, to, to have awake surgery. So the nice thing about doing it asleep is that you don't have to stop your meds. Um, you, you take them right up to the, you know, the moment you go into surgery, and then we restart them right away when you wake up. So it's not such a, a major impact, I think, uh, that awake surgery is for people. Oh, great, great information. Great. I, I want to ask you about um, the, the the new ultrasound ablation procedure that um, is available now, you know, in many centers across the country, uh, mostly on the coast, um, uh, very few locations available just yet in the middle of the country, but uh, it's moving this direction. Um, but, but I think patients and caregivers are, are learning about this option, and if their loved one has a real severe tremor, uh, they're, they're often asking me, what do you think would be the better treatment? Do you think DBS or this ultrasound ablation would be worth considering? So I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how they would compare from your vantage point and uh, are there advantages or disadvantages to uh, either one? Sure. So um, it's a great question. I will say, you know, we, we are actively working to get that system in Oklahoma um, part of the reason there's been a, a void um, in the center of the United States is that, um, or at least in our region, is that uh, CMS uh, did not approve reimbursement for the for ablative procedures with ultrasound until recently. And so the closest center for a very long time was, was um, Nebraska, well, it was first Cleveland and then, then Nebraska. Um, actually, just this year, a couple centers around here have gone online. One is in Kansas City. Um, one is in uh, Dallas. And then they're also um, getting one in Austin and, and in Houston. Um, so, uh, and there's one in uh, uh, Colorado, I think Boulder actually is where it, has, it is. But um, so a lot of uh, hospital systems are now purchasing this equipment and, and, and getting those uh, getting those programs up and running. So a couple of things about the uh, the uh, about lesioning procedures. Um, so right now, the only thing that it's uh, FDA approved for is um, treatment resistant essential tremor. Um, so for, for thalamotomy, so for, um, lesioning the thalamus itself, specifically for essential tremor patients. And then the other thing that it's FDA approved for is, um, tremor predominant Parkinson's disease that's also medication resistant. Now, the benefit of the system is that you don't have to have an incision and you don't have to have any implanted hardware. Um, so that's really the, the, the huge benefit of it. It's also outpatient, um, and the effects are instantaneous. Um, so those are all good things with the system. Um, there are some downsides with it. Um, one downside is that, you, at least as far as we know, you really can't safely treat bilateral uh, symptoms with this. There are some places that have been doing bilateral treatments 
Um, but the, the traditional thinking behind doing bilateral lesioning, so a lesion on the right thalamus to treat the left body, a lesion on the left thalamus to treat the right body, for instance, can hasten cognitive decline. Um, that's been known for a long time. Lesioning's been around since the 60s, um, but this is a new technology, um, a new way of delivering the lesion. It's still controlled damage um, in the brain, no matter how you look at it. It's, it's still inv invasive in that way. Um, it just doesn't require an incision in, in, with this technique. Um, so there is that limitation that you do, you know, have this possible issue where if you have bilateral symptoms, it's probably not the right option, um, in all honesty, because it can hasten cognitive decline. It can cause dementia if you do bilateral lesioning. Now, unilateral lesioning or lesioning just on one side of the body. So, for instance, let's say you have a patient who has right upper extremity tremor that's very severe. Maybe they have some left upper extremity tremor, but it's really not that bad. Um, for instance, um, you could technically just treat the, the most symptomatic side, um, and they could, you know, go on with their life um, without really treating the other side. Um, that's what, so one of the issues with it is that you really it's it's not advisable, um, at least as far as I know at this point, to, to do bilateral treatment. The other downside of the system is that um, it doesn't, or it, it, it does, there does seem to be some degree of wearing off um, from the lesion. So what ends up happening whenever you cause a lesion is that initially, no matter how you do it, uh, no matter if you do it with, uh, you know, ultrasound or with uh, heat or with a laser or with radiation, however you do it, the brain always swells a little bit around the lesion. It does the same thing with DBS too. And that goes away over time. Um, the issue with lesioning is that some of that swelling actually contributes to treatment effect and treatment benefit. And as it wanes, sometimes the symptoms can kind of come back to some degree. So there is a, a known element of needing retreatment with the ultrasound. However, the one way to look at that too would be to say, well, so what? It doesn't require an incision, <laughs> you know, and it's outpatient. What's the big deal, you know? So it kind of comes down to philosophy at that point. You know, if you want the most durable, long-lasting uh, treatment option, well, in that situation, deep brain stimulation probably is better. Um, if you want something that is incisionless, um, outpatient, and doesn't require any implanted hardware, well, the ultrasound seems to be, and, and you know, your symptoms are primarily unilateral. The ultrasound is a great option in those situations. Now, at least in Oklahoma, unfortunately, we don't have it here locally yet, so you would have to travel out of state. Um, so that is one downside of it. The other thing about it, I think that is definitely worth mentioning is that it, it, if you're just treating tremor, let's say that you have a patient who has Parkinson's disease and they have tremor predominant Parkinson's disease. That doesn't mean that all they have is tremor. It just means that that's the worst component of their disease and the most disabling part of it. An ultrasound thalamotomy is really only going to treat the tremor. It doesn't help any of the other cardinal movement related symptoms in Parkinson's such as rigidity, and bradykinesia or slowness of movement or even dystonia um, in these patients. So it only really can treat one aspect of Parkinson's, which would be the tremor itself. Now, that may be the most important thing to treat, and the others, the other symptoms may not be as, as strong or, or disabling. And in that case, that patient's still a good candidate. But I think that if your goal is to try to treat you know, everything you can um, in Parkinson's from a movement-related standpoint, DBS gives you... Um, you know, a more robust response in that way. Now, you can also implant DBS in the thalamus um, and just treat tremor, but we typically don't do that. We typically implant DBS in, 
either the subclinic nucleus or the GPI for patients with Parkinson's disease. And that treats not only tremor for a lot of patients, but other things like rigidity and slowness of movement. And it also helps reduce their on-off fluctuations, those sort of things. So there's a little more of a, a breadth of treatment with BBS. The, the other thing with BBS is that, you know, it's reversible, right? So if you're having a side effect from it, you can just reduce the power or turn the system off. With lesioning, what you see is what you get. If you have a side effect from lesioning, unless it's just related to brain swelling from the lesion, it's not going to go away. The damage is done, literally. Um, so there is that aspect of an irreversible treatment with, with ultrasound. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because we do know that some of these patients are needing retreatment. Um, so there is going to be some degree of this kind of idea of reversible treatment, but it's still controlled damage. Um, in the brain. I think that it definitely has a, a role. Um, I think that, you know, there, there have been studies looking at using the ultrasound for doing pallidotomies, which would treat um, the Parkinson's symptoms that I was discussing, like rigidity and bradykinesia, as well as tremor in some cases, but that's not FDA approved yet. Um, and that has not been totally sorted out, so to speak, as of yet. Um, but again, that's still unilateral. Um, so that's the downside of it. Now, there are people that have had unilateral ultrasound lesioning and then had DBS on the contralateral or the other side of the brain and done very well with that. That's an accepted practice. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. It seems like a lot of, uh, you know, rigmarole for the same kind of benefit, um, but those patients do exist. So, for instance, you could theoretically Let's say that, you know, I mean, we know, you know, Parkinson's usually starts on one side of the body, right? And sometimes it stays on that side. It doesn't really affect the other in some cases, at least not for a very long time for some people. So in theory, you could treat the symptomatic side and maybe years later, um, you know, uh, you might need treatment for the other side. And in that case, DBS is a reasonable option that would just be placed unilaterally, just one electrode to treat the other side of the body, for instance. That has definitely been done um, and is, is very acceptable. Um I do think that, you know, one last thought about lesioning and, and really one of the benefits of it that really can't be understated is that you, you aren't implanting hardware when you're doing lesioning. There are absolutely issues with implanting devices in patients, you know, issues like infection risk and device erosion risk and device discomfort um, as well. Those are things that you really can't understate. Um this does away with those risks, right? There, there is no implanted battery or wire or anything like that that can get infected or erode to the skin or, or cause, you know, uh, discomfort to the patient. So there definitely is that. So if you have a patient who, let's say, for instance, has, you know, poorly controlled diabetes or something like that, or, or maybe they have, you know, immunocompromise and they, uh, you know, don't heal well, um, they're probably not a great candidate or an implant, um, you know, with a foreign object like a DBS system, and that might be a better candidate for lesioning where you're not actually implanting a system that may be at a higher risk for having a problem like an infection down the road. So it definitely has a role in that situation for sure. That's great. great. And you've been so generous with your time today. I, I really appreciate all of the wonderful advice and, and feedback that you've been giving us. I Sort of in closing, I wanted to see... If you could offer, do you have any advice that you would give care partners or caregivers that are with a loved one that are really in the midst of making this decision? You know, they feel like they want to move forward with DBS or, or maybe just an ablation procedure, but 
any advice that you would give them as they move through this whole process of, of this surgical procedure? Yeah, I think that, you know, n number one, I, I think, it, you know, it, it's e easy for me to say this because I'm a surgeon, but I, I do, you know, think that it, it's, it's worthwhile to mention, you know, it, you shouldn't be scared of surgery. Um, yes, it is brain surgery. Yes, there are real risks. Um, those risks are very low um, as far as, you know, bad outcomes or complications or something like that um, from surgery. So it's not something to fear. It's definitely something to strongly consider. Um, I think that the most important thing, though, um, when discussing or thinking about moving forward with surgery is really what are your expectations um, with the surgery itself? Remember that, you know, DBS is not a silver bullet. It, it doesn't treat all of the, the problems that Parkinson's disease causes. It really is only meant to treat and really only can treat um, the, the motor or the movement-related symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So it's very good at treating on and off fluctuation. It's very good at treating tremor. That's resistant to medication. It's good at treating rigidity. It's good at treating slowness of movement. And in some cases, it's good at treating dystonia. Um, it doesn't slow down the progression of the disease. Um, it, that's one thing it cannot do. Um, it doesn't treat, uh, you know, any of the other things that, that Parkinson's can cause, like constipation. It doesn't help get your sense of smell back. It, it doesn't help your memory or your thinking. It really is only meant to improve quality of life for patients from a movement-related standpoint. And so if those are the primary issues that yet that your, your loved one's facing or the person you're caring for is facing, it's a great option in those patients in a lot of cases. Um, I think that it's just incredibly important to, to, you know, have realistic expectations as far as what can be accomplished with the system um, and really what, what it's meant to do. But I, I do you know, think that it's also important to mention that, you know, yes, it's, it's obviously anxiety-inducing to be considering surgery, especially surgery on your brain. Um, but it's not something to be scared of. Um, you know, there, there are you know, thousands and thousands of people that have had successful surgery and, and, and really, I mean, they're, they're almost like cheerleaders for, for, for the surgery because they're so happy. Um, and they wish they would have done it sooner. You know, I hear that so often, I, you know, I, I have a number of patients that, you know, literally tell me in clinic, like if you have anybody that, that wants to have surgery, let them, tell them to call me. I'll tell them exactly how great it is and that sort of thing. I even had patients sent to me because their friend who they met at a support group had, had such a great result with DBS that they, they said, you got to go, you know, get, get the surgery done. So I think there, there is that. But, you know, with all that being said, and, you know, we, we always have to make sure that we're being realistic as far as what it can and can't do um, and, and, and what benefit it can, it can bring. I think that, you know, sort of the last thing is, you know, I, I implant a lot of different types of stimulators for various things. That's just my job, and, um, you know, for seizures, for pain, for movement disorders. And of all of those things, DDS is the least explanted device in humans, meaning that patients typically are very happy that they underwent the surgery and almost all of them derive some benefit from the device. Um, some better than others, um, but I think that, you know, in general, it's one of those things that really does help people a lot, and if the, the concerns that patients are having revolve around the motor or movement-related symptoms that Parkinson's is causing, and they're at a point where medications just aren't cutting it anymore, it's a really great option for them to consider, um, you know, at least to think about. Now, granted, it may not be the right option for certain people. And that's okay. Um, it just depends. I think that, 
you know, it comes down to knowing that the system exists and knowing that it's out there and then having a, you know, a discussion with, with your uh, neurologist and, and specifically asking, you know, hey, is this, is this right for me, you know, or, or not? I mean, you know, most neurologists, I think, especially like, hey, Dr. Costa, I mean, you're all obviously thinking about this as your specialty, but, you know, I think that, you know, it's always good for patients to be, you know, somewhat of an advocate because sometimes, you know, in bringing that up, you know, it may actually give you more information about what's going on at home, you know, like, well, yeah, you know, I am having a lot of fluctuations, you know, that sort of thing. You know, they don't really want to say that, but they are. I mean, no one, no one wants to admit that, you know, things are getting worse, right? They don't want to, you know, of course not. Um, cause you know, that means more treatment and, and potentially surgery and that sort of thing. But I think that, you know, ultimately it's good to set expectations. It's, it's completely understandable to be nervous about the prospect of surgery, but understand that it's, it's really, this, this is a very low risk procedure, um, uh, overall. And, and the outcomes are very good. It's one of the, the better surgeries that's out there, at least in our field, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it keeps me going. It's why I do what I do because it really, I mean, you help patients. I mean, it's, it's such a meaningful improvement for a lot of people that it's hard to, to, to not be a big advocate for it, you know? Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. And I think it's important to tell our listeners that, you know, you do a very comprehensive uh, preoperative workup. You know, you do neuropsychometric testing for the patients. You do imaging and, and, and do a lot of work to make sure that they are truly uh, a good candidate, that they're safe to go through surgery. Um, and we, we really appreciate all the time that you spend with patients and families going over um, all of the information and making sure that they have the right expectations. And uh, we're just so thankful that you're here in Oklahoma and all the wonderful work you've done for our patients here. And it's, it's just been such a joy to talk to you today. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, uh, you know, this, this is home for me. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that, I, that we're able to offer this service here and, you know, help a lot of people. I certainly, um, you know, it's definitely a, a very gratifying uh, job, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, it's, it's nice to go to work each day and know that, you know, you're making a difference. And uh, I, do, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk on this podcast. I think it's really great. And, you know, especially, uh, you know, have this directed at caregivers. I think that, you know, like you say, it's kind of the often overlooked part of the disease is the people that are helping, right? And so I think that it's really important to, to focus on them and, um, and you know, uh, try to you know, get as much education out there as we can. Yes, well, thank you so much, Dr. Connor. We, we thank you for your time today and uh, really appreciate all the wonderful information you shared with us. All right, no problem. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. And remember, you are a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think.